Hey, Michael. Okay. Um, good morning, everyone. I'm Michael Boudreau, um, the advisor to the DLN and the editor of the new magazine, Hive. Um, so I want to welcome you to the, our DLN Expert Access and where we take a closer look at important and relevant topics to the field of architecture and design um, with leading experts. And today's going to take us to Italy with one of my favorite experts, my former colleague, uh, Hamish Bowles, who now serves as international editor-at-large at Vogue, and he's a renowned fashion historian and collector as well. Um, he has now just recently published a fantastic new book, which I urge you all to go out and buy right after this meeting. It is called Federico Forquet, Italy's Forgotten Master of Fashion, Interiors, and Gardens, published by Rizzoli, and it features photographs by Guido Taroni. So we're so pleased um, to have Hamish here this morning to talk about Federico Forquet and his book. And just before we get started, I want you to all to realize that you can go into the chat room if you have any questions, um, put them in the chat section and we will answer questions at the end. But now I wanna go ahead and uh, welcome Hamish uh, here to talk about a fascinating subject. Um, Hamish, you know, I'm somebody who's supposed to know about um, something about fashion and interiors, and yet I was not at all familiar with Federico Forque. My knowledge of, you know, mid-century Italian fashion was Gucci, Pucci, and Valentino. Um, so I'd love it if you would start off by giving a little background. Yes. Well, I, I for me, Federico Forque was this sort of glamorous, but rather mysterious unknown figure who had a, I knew that he had a couture house in Rome through the 60s, the period of the Dolce Vita, which was of course um, marvelously evoked in that introductory song. Thank you for that choice. Um, <laughs> and then I knew that he'd gone on to have a kind of subsequent life as um, uh, a decorator uh, notably of his own house uh, in Chitona, uh, uh, just outside a rather marvelous sort of Renaissance village in the Tuscan Hills. Um, but I knew little more than that. So uh, it was exciting to do a sort of deep dive into this sort of forgotten master's world um, uh, with, with the wonderful advantage of having Federico still very, very much around and with us and an extremely um, vital, youthful 89-year-old with a great deal more energy than, than both I and uh, Guido Taroni, who's our 30-ish 30, 30 um, year old photographer. Um, we, were, we were sort of run ragged by Federico. So what I... What I discovered, which was extremely exciting to me, was that um, Federico had been something of a protege to Cristobal Balenciaga, the great um, Spanish-born couturier who um, established a couture house in Paris in 1937, and by the by the early 50s was a, was a leading influential, globally influential figure in in fashion. Um, and is still today. And, and very much so today through, through different incarnations. So 
what happened, so as I was to discover, Federico was um, a child of privilege. I think we could say he was born to a um, patrician aristocratic Neapolitan family um, with French forebears. There was a Charles, a Charles Fourquet who came to Naples, um, which was then of course a wonderful uh, kingdom. Um, um, and one of the one of the sort of wealthiest areas of Europe. Um, in the first quarter of the 19th century, established a, a very successful bank. And um, I think three generations later, the family decided that they didn't really need to be bankers. They were perfectly happy um, existing on the, <laughs> the funds that had been generated by their forebears. So um, as a result, the, the um, great family palazzo in the center of Naples was sold at the turn of the century. And Federico was brought up in a, in a really exquisite house in Posilipo um, on the sort of suburb of Naples, um, built into a kind of cliff above the water. And the rather magical thing about the house in that area is that from the house, you were looking down over the waters, but to the submerged, um, uh, ruins of Roman villas um, where the sea had sort of encroached. So you were looking down through the through the clear waters onto these sort of mosaic Roman mosaic floors. Wow. So that was that was Federico's morning swim as a child. Um, <laughs> Not exactly Alana Ferrante's Naples. No, quite <laughs> Naples. And um, I think he was clearly engaged by the idea of fashion and costume at a very, very early age. The, the fantastic thing that I discovered soon after I embarked on this project um, is that Federico is as much of a pack rat as I am and has um, kept absolutely everything. So he has every fashion sketch he ever did he has oh. diaries, every photograph. He has. Um, he was a, um, a. He was a, an infant piano prodigy, and and was set for a career as a as a concert pianist. Oh. So he's extremely cultured, and he went to every. So you know, we have every program from Broadway and Glyndebourne and the West End, and every kind of music festival around um, Italy. And of course, his correspondence and so on. So for me, it was an absolute dream to have this material. But one of the things that he's preserved is his diary from, uh, or his sort of day book from 1940, when he would have been nine or 10 years old. And on every single, we, we published a few pictures um, in the book. On every single page, there's a different fashion drawing. <laughs> <laughs> so he was, um, during, during the war, um, the house was sort of requisitioned by um, a German, uh, uh, not a German admiral, that was a hideous Freudian slip, by an American admiral. And, um, 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 and he would invite the family 4K who would sort of move to their summer house to, um, um, to these movie screenings on on deck and um federico's you know sort of 10 year old was a bit highly impressed by the sort of salutes and everything and the, all, all the um 
uh, all the sailors sort of lined up and then they would screen kind of Carmen Miranda movies <laughs> and Betty Grable and I think that kind of um, fueled him with this sort of idea of the, the glamour of um, movie star costumes and so on. So I think that he was, he continued to, um, to do all these fashion studies. And in fact, we have his Greek homework, which is covered in fashion drawings. Oh he, my God, it was fate. There was, was no escape. Fate. It was fate and his father's kind of um, mimeographed um, sort of stocks and shares um, information, which came on this very sort of paper fine, like rice paper. Um, and there's just fashion sketches all over that too. <laughs> so, um, I think there was no denying his destiny, but what happened was that um, he was he was moving in a circle of um, sort of um, well-born Eastleets who were um, spending a lot of time on Ischia, which was the sort of bohemian Capri at, the, at that time. And, um, you know, Benjamin Britten was there and, and all these great kind of creative people. And Federico got a call from, from one of his friends saying, I wonder if you can help me out because um, Cristobal Balenciaga, the great French couturier, um, is coming for a sort of post-collection rest to Ischia. And I have an exhibition opening in Rome. I'm not gonna be able to help him. Do you think you could possibly um, make your way to Ischia and sort of be his companion um, for a few days? He's there with, with his partner, um, Raul, uh, Raul uh, Esparza. So, um, they duly connected and Federico went and they sort of hit it off. Um, and I think they talked about everything but fashion and Federico was far too shy to tell him that he had aspirations to be a, a fashion designer. But his, um, his friend um, having opened his exhibition sort of arrived on the island, met them for dinner one night and said, oh, Federico must have told you all about his aspirations to be a fashion designer. And you must tell me what you think of his sketches and if you think he's got any props. So Federico's, I think, wanted the earth to open up and swallow right. him. But um, instead, um, Balenciaga said, well, you know, br bring me your sketches, I want to see them. And he, he didn't want to kind of taint the sort of holiday friendship by, by doing anything as sort of professional commercial as that on the island. So he arranged to go to Paris and show Balenciaga the sketches and those, you know, Federico, who is a, who is a fantastic raconteur, um, spun this amazing story of going to um, Paris. His, his family, of course, were horrified at the idea, um, but he went armed with all his sketches and he sort of hung out um, his diaries exist for that period and it's absolutely unbelievable because, you know, he's having um, dinner with uh, Prince and Princess of Yugoslavia and then he's having um, um, uh, lunch with Cocteau. And I mean, it's really astonishing. He met, he met all the sort of great um, cultural fashion and society figures of the day you know, many of whom were friends of friends and so on. So he, he had an entree into the world of Parisian high society, which was then very much meshed with fashion and with the arts, as you know. Um, and Balenciaga was very civil and they had lunch and then they had breakfast and they had dinners and they never ever discussed fashion. <laughs> um, 
And finally, after about a month and a half, um, Balenciaga said, oh, why don't you bring me your sketches? And so Federico came with sort of 200 sketches or something, and they sat there in stony silence while sort of Balenciaga sort of turned them very slowly, one by one. Occasionally, he'd put a sketch to the side, and he had about 10 sketches put aside, and he pushed the others, and he said, these sketches are of no interest to me, but these 10 sketches here seem to have the germ of an idea. I need you to go away. You've got a weekend. You can use my apartment so that you're in peace and quiet. And I want to see a collection of 200 pieces by Monday morning. Oh my God. Federico had to put, a, put his frantic social life on hold for the weekend. <laughs> I would think. And sort of work through the night and anyway, Balenciaga must have liked what he saw because he invited um, Balenciaga, he invited uh, Federico into his atelier um, studio, really to sort of sit by his side and to sketch finished ideas and just to, for him to sort of absorb what was going on. And of course it was very reverential atmosphere. I think everyone was rather like a kind of convent with Madame Renee who was the directrice as the sort of, um, head of the establishment and she was very, very wary of this Italian interloper in their midst. And of course, you know, all the sort of um, young technical assistants like Ungaro and Courage, who were both tailors then, um, had nothing like the access that Federico had. So they sort of were, um, <laughs> couldn't believe this sort of cuckoo. A little jealousy, I'm sure. Jealousy. <clears throat> anyway, th this went on and, and um, Federico was invited back um, for the sort of three month period before the collections for about five seasons. And Balenciaga said to him, look, you should really expand your horizons. Why don't you go and see if you can do some freelance work for an Italian couturier, just so you can see a different way of working and so on. And Federico did just that. And he worked for Fabiani. This is one of his designs for Fabiani, um, which is rather interesting because it kind of evokes um, a lot of the childhood sketches from a few years before um, that, that, you know, are in his amazing archive. And how, um, how big was the Italian fashion scene? Because, you know, we always hear about the French. And I mean, as I said, I know about Valentino and Gucci, but I don't know how big the Italian fashion scene was. Well, it was, um, you know, that the Couture is used to show in Florence, or Salabianca. Mm -hmm. There was a great, very dynamic kind of PR guy who consolidated all the most interesting houses so, so that the American buyers could go to Florence. They would be wined and dined and fated with principessas and so on and um, amazing gala presentations. And you would see the sportswear that the young um, designer um, and skier uh, Emilio Pucci, Count Emilio Pucci was creating on um, Capri and you would see the ball gowns of Schubert and some of the great Roman couturiers and the prices were more competitive than Paris. The workmanship was wonderful and there was a kind of elan to the mm -hmm. Italian designers that was sort of uniquely Italian and so a lot of American stores would do Italian week promotions and so on. So there was a there was a sense that the, the designs were interesting. You can see in contemporary issues of Vogue and Bazaar, um, there is um, coverage of um, Italian, you know, Couture Week and so on, and certainly of, of Pucci and um, 
some of the kind of high-end ready-to-wear designers that are emerging. So um, um, very quickly what happened was that um, um, Madame Rene of Balenciaga was very keen to see the back of um, Master 4K. <laughs> she was delighted to discover that one of her clients, Irene Galitsin, who was a um, Russian princess based in Rome, um, had decided to, um, and had been doing sort of line for line copies of Balenciaga dresses and so on, uh, which was a, you know, a, a popular thing to do. You would go to Paris, you would buy the, the rights to reproduce the pattern, right. use it for your local. I client. remember Bendel's used to do that. Exactly, all the American stores did it. It was a big source of income for all the fashion houses at that point. So um, she was looking for a designer and Balenciaga thought that it would be a great idea if Federico went back to Rome, he'd be close to his family and friends and, you know, with the benefit of what he'd learned at Balenciaga. So that happened. Um, um, 4K's tenure at um, Galitzin was short but very sweet. He managed to um, conceive this idea of um, what Diana Vreeland called palazzo pajamas, which was sort of kind of chic loungewear for entertaining in your palazzo. <laughs> um, and so this is so pertinent today. So pertinent today, actually very pertinent today. Um, mm -hmm. Became a sort of um, symbol of the Dolce Vita. Right. And um, soon after that, 4K was sort of encouraged by both Balenciaga and Diana Vreeland, who had become a friend of his, to set up his own couture house, which he did um, at the cusp of the 60s. Right. And he soon established himself. I mean, the very first collection, he was hailed uh, in the Italian press as, as Italy's Dior. You know, he had um, this sense of drama and style and kind of Italian flair to his designs or a lot of kind of one shoulder togas. This is a, um, a wonderful double face coat that actually Mrs. Vreeland ordered for herself. And then- Yeah, you have a great picture of her wearing it in the book. picture of her with Truman Capote and CZ Guest actually, right. um, heading off to a Broadway first night. And this and is Marissa, Marissa Berenson, isn't it? Marissa Berenson photographed yes. by Irving Penn. Yeah. Um, we were lucky enough to get the original transparency from the Penn Estate, so Fantastic. you can see it in all its kind of pop-art glory. This is the wonderful model, Daniela Luna, photographed for Queen magazine, and here you can see um, at, at, the, at the very um, Mussolini um, building that is now the Fendi headquarters, in fact. Right. Um, and you can see Federico's taste for kind of jalabas and this sort of 60s exoticism and his, his very dynamic color sense. Um, so, you know, Federico is extremely well connected. This is Federico in London, where he had an apartment with some British models showing his, his clothes there. Um, um, Federico was soon dressing Morella Agnelli, who was his best friend. Um, if you can remember back to the first brilliant color image and the first um, black and white image of a very striking woman, that was Allegra Caracciolo, who was Morella's cousin who became Federico's kind of fashion muse. He'd made her debutante dress um, and then she became his sort of muse and was often photographed wearing his creations. She's, she's still astoundingly elegant, beautiful woman to this day. And um, this, um, 
this is one of Guido Taroni's photographs. Um, Guido and I had so much fun on this project, I must say. Um, and it's great that Guido was based in Milan because he could be very nimble. Um, we decided to bring the extant garments that we could find that we felt would be important for the book to life by photographing them in environments that were associated with Federico. This is the terrace of the Palazzo Tolonia, um, Princess Olympia, Donna Olympia Tolonia's residence. Um, she was um, the granddaughter of Queen Ina of Spain, who was Queen Victoria, in turn, Queen Victoria's granddaughter. And Queen, she brought her grandmother to Federico's first collection and, and she was his very first client. She'd been, wow. a great, she'd been a great client of Balenciaga and she was thrilled to see this sort of protege of, of Balenciaga. So uh, there was this, and, the, and her, the palazzo was right next to um, Federico's salon. So, uh, his friend Donna Olympia called up and said, "You know, Granny would love to come and see your show. Is that a, is that a private? That's not an inconvenience." <laughs> so meanwhile, all the all the models had to be taught how to do a deep court curtsy, and a, a suitable throne had to be found. <laughs> so they all, they all came twirling through the salons and then dipped to deep curtsy when they got to Queen Ina, and she she duly ordered a couple of outfits. So, yeah, so uh, great. Federico was very proud, and he was dressing. Um, he was. Um, dressing Morella Agnelli and Nan Kempner, Babe Paley, all these kind of mid-century swans mm -hmm. um, who he sort of knew socially as well. Um, we, were, we were photographing in the villa, uh, in the Palazzo Torlonia when this extremely chic Italian princess arrived with a suitcase. Um, or as I think the concierge arrived puffing, puffingly up the stairs with a, suit, with a suitcase and she opened it up and had all these 4K treasures, um, including this wonderful sort of Midsummer Night's Dream dress. So we, we steamed it up with the wonderful team from Torelli, the, the great Italian costume mm -hmm. house, provided our second venue where we, were, we photographed those dresses amongst the kind of ghosts of all these extraordinary clothes that designers like Piero Tozzi had made for Visconti and so on. This is, um, oh, that were well, been and gone. That was Federico. This is Federico with um, one of his house models and um, his playful kind of shirt jacket and these little knickerbockers. Um, one of he the- He was kind of very modern at some points, you know, considering his aristocratic background. I mean, he does fit in with like Correge and like, this is something that Correge might've done or- Yes, well, yes. Right and at he, the moment. Yeah, he was a young man at this point, yeah. of course, and yeah. dynamic and moving in kind of, you know, moving in sort of groovy circles. And Rome was a great a place where, you know, Cinecitta, so you had the, the movies, the movie studios and all those Italian movies. Fellini stars. and, yeah. Exactly, it was a Fellini, Dolce Vita moment. And I think that one of the things that, that this came from another Principessa, actually, <laughs> suddenly, <laughs> we saying maybe you'd like to photograph this, which indeed we we did. Um, there, there with a with a, um, a, a painting after Titian, also in the Palazzo Tolonia. We um, Balenciaga had said to one of the things that he um, taught um, Federico was to um, to practice an elegant continuity in your collections, you know, that, you know, your clients need to see something that is reassuring, that faintly evokes something they already have, 
with a twist or whatever, and then occasionally throw in some fireworks, you know, um, just so that they can see you're on the ball and you, you know, they've got something to put in the magazine. So that's <laughs> kind of what he practiced. So his collections, and he also did a Balenciaga thing, which is that he, um, before every collection, he put the sketch, he laid the sketches out on the floor to make sure that he had things that would suit all, every different kind of client. So the, mm -hmm. the elegant continuum and then the kind of razzle-dazzle dare. And, you know, he did very daring things. That um, wonderful color block coat we saw earlier, photographed by Irving Penn on mm -hmm. Legra Caracciolo, um, actually came off to reveal a skirt and um, a very elaborate necklace, but nothing underneath. Oh. So um, that, of course, um, made global headlines <laughs> uh, in 1966. Um, so Federico, you know, he knew how to kind of play the press. Right. Um, what do we have next? Um, so at the same time, um, and now we're the, in the late 60s, at the cusp of the 70s, Federico's having a wonderful time dressing all his friends, going to fittings. You know, he has um, Denise Hale and Morella Agnelli and um, Jane Fonda's sister and all the Chinichita stars. Um, Sophia Loren, um, Gina Lola Brigida. Um, he's having a whale of a time and he's also bringing his own taste to his own environments. Um, he worked with Renzo Mongiardino on his apartment um, in Rome. Um, Mongiardino did these wall panels. Federico also from childhood was a great collector. His grandfather, when he was about when Federico was about seven, his grandfather gave him a little amount of money and said, I want to see what you can do with this. So Federico went off antiquing at the age of seven and found mm -hmm. a Capo de Monte figure um, of a sort of Egyptian um, holding a sort of bouquet of porcelain flowers. And he brought it back and his, father's, his grandfather said, well, yes, <laughs> I think this shows that you will never have taste <laughs> um, but um, at least you're not going to fritter your money away. So that was the beginning of sort of Federico's obsession with collecting, which now manifests itself in this really astounding collection of objects um, from ancient Rome through the 18th and 19th centuries, um, and that all pretty much relate to the Baroque or the neoclassical neoclassicism of his native Naples. I think that's a, that's very key to his collecting instincts. And, um, and then Federico started kind of um, toying with decorating himself. Uh, Allegra Caracciolo asked, seeing what good taste he had in arranging his own apartment, asked him if he would um, consider doing her apartment, which was in the same building where Morella and Gianni Agnelli had the the fabled penthouse, um, and they, um, the Agnelli's upstairs had considered asking Mongiardino to decorate and he'd done the whole scheme. And then um, Gianni Agnelli thought he wanted to go modern. So they brought in modern architects. And when they had the modern interior, Morena Agnelli thought it looked a, li looked a little bit too cold for her instincts. So she asked Federico if he could cozy it up. And he um, advised her to um, decorate with wicker furniture and he found 
Bonaccino, um, one of the great Italian craftspeople. And so that was the beginning of the fabled kind of Morella Agnelli idea of mixing wicker furniture with extremely grand boule objects or, you know, oh, Russian furniture. So that very much came from Federico. In the meantime, he conspired with Zumsteg, who was um, the creator of Abraham Fabrics, Gustav Zumsteg, who, um, with whom he'd collaborated on a lot of um, designs for his fashion line to make some textiles uh, for interiors. And he did one that was a faux porphyry, uh, which he covered the walls of um, Allegra um, and Yeli's apartment with. And um, Andy Warhol came for dinner and he was like, that's so cool. You've got you've got porphyry walls. That's so cool. And then when he <laughs> felt he realized that it was um, actually a textile, he was kind of amazed. And um, Federico felt sort of vindicated. And that you know, if if Morella Agnelli and um, Andy Warhol were sort of approving of his decorations, right, exactly. Maybe he would just, just start doing a little bit more of that. To so provoke what, any kind of reaction from Warhol is a, is a feat, but an approving one is great. Totally. So this coincided, of course, with the student uprisings of 68 and the general um, um, angst that um, people were feeling around the world with the Vietnam War and everything else that was happening. Um, and not to mention Italy's very own problems with the Red Brigade and- Yes, um, it was a very violent time. And so on. So it was a very volatile period. Federico could kind of see that the future of fashion was in ready to wear. And what he enjoyed was dressing movie stars and um, socialites who had these glamorous platforms for wearing these wonderful entrance making clothes. He loved the one-on-one the -on -one of the fittings, you know, he just loved making his clients look beautiful. And he had trained in the couture and he didn't understand ready to wear. And he was always a one man band. I mean, he had um, the Milliner Canessa did his hats, but he designed them. He worked with a great textile designer, but he kind of fed him the ideas and the themes. Um, the same for the shoes, for the costume jewelry. He never ever wanted to hire an assistant to delegate a design job and he still doesn't he's a one-man band wow. Wow. Uh, like a, he's the sort of Mario Boata of Italy you know he does it all <laughs> himself um so uh, you know orders every bit of gimp and every lampshade and goes Amazing. to the lampshade guy you know um so he um he felt that his way of doing fashion was becoming old-fashioned he didn't understand the new world and he didn't want to be a part of it and he was very, very happy creating environments and interiors. So he very elegantly shuttered his couture house really at the height of his fame. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that was so amazing to me was discovering um, the, there was one amazing moment when we arrived, uh, um, Guido and I arrived in Chaton and we had a, a late dinner and we were absolutely shattered. And Federico said, ah, I have, I have something that will amuse you. So amusing. You must come upstairs, I think. So we went up to his, um, one of the guest bedrooms, which has been co-opted as his um, fashion archive. <laughs> and the entire room was covered three or four magazines deep 
with 60s and early 70s magazines that were open with post-its in. And Whoa. they were all coverage of his collections and his clothes. Wow. And there were, I mean, really thousands of images. I mean, he really was a great couturier, revered by all the great fashion editors of the day. Mm -hmm. But because he thought he thought it was very, very vulgar to license your name, you know, mm -hmm. you still had that <laughs> patrician Neapolitan thing going on. He thought it was very tacky to put your names to a sunglass or a fragrance even. Or chocolates know. or a car. Anything, right. or a car. So he disdained that. So he never got his name out there. You know, he was mm -hmm. just, it was always very chic and niche and- Known to the Carnesenti. Absolutely. Um, if you knew, you knew, you know. Right. Sort of like the the, the, the jar of the fashion world in, in right. 60s, in right. 60s Rome, which is, in fact is where he met Joel Rosenthal, who was one of the contributors to our book, uh, wonderfully. So, um, and, the another thing that had happened is that his partner Matteo Spinola, who was um, a kind of movie agent and worked with Sophia Loren and so on, and had been extremely useful at the beginning of Fed they they met in um, 1959 before Federico opened his own house, and I think he was one of the people who kind of pushed Federico to fly. Um, um, and then, of course, had all these great contacts in Cinecitta and you know, um, led to Federico dressing, Sophia Loren and so on. Um, he, Matteo had sort of um, thought it was about time to get a house in the country. And Federico had a, a place on Capri and an apartment in London. And those kind of suited his um, jet, set li jet set lifestyle. And he wasn't really interested in country rustic rural living but anyway he sort of um they toured around in their little triumph um going through tuscany and um spinola eventually found a kind of bro a, a sort of tumble down farmhouse that was on several terraced fields you know arable fields with the most magical immemorial view of mount chatona which is the sort of mystical um mountain um, that um, um, has, um, you know, a prehistory um, and um, Roman history and uh, Renaissance history attached to it. And it really looks like um, um, a, a backdrop to a Renaissance painting. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a really magical setting. But I think Federico sort of took one look at the sort of tumble down farmhouse and was highly, I'm very happy to, to continue to spend time on Capri and in, um, I think it was Edgerton Terrace. Um, so, um, but what happened was that um, um, Federico befriended Russell Page, who was working for, um, oh, who was, We've lost some pictures. There we go. Marvelous. Back again. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> the, the legendary landscape architect who was working for the Agnelli's. And Russell came to Chitona and saw possibilities and suggested some things and then started taking Federico with him to um, these legendary Italian gardens. And, you know, Federico got the bug mm -hmm. and eventually um, 
it became as important to him as it was to Matteo and probably more so. Mm-hmm. And um, when- so It's a very contagious bug. It's a very contagious bug. bug. So they, they dramatically improved um, the farmhouse. Uh, Russell Page had suggested linking um, a, a farm building with the original farmhouse structure, creating a kind of interior um, open terrace with a little reflecting Gorgeous. fountain um, and a limonaya, a sort of wonderful summer room between the two. And um, so they, they kind of created this um, really magical environment. And when uh, Matteo died in the late eighties, um, the house and the gardens sort of became the project of Federico's own life, you know. And at the same time, he was continuing to advise and work with friends and um, help them decorate and so on, um, designing more textiles for Zumsteg. This is one of the collections he did for Zumsteg. He also encouraged Morella Agnelli to channel her own great creative instincts into designing um, a line of textiles uh, for Zumsteg. Um, and she did these wonderful little sprayed floors, which became extremely popular in the 70s. Um, this is um, Federico's Roman apartment. It's, it's not, it's a different apartment than the one we saw earlier, but he um, moved and reinstalled the uh, Mongiardino panels. And here you see this kind of extraordinary um, um, late 18th century painting of um, the eruption of uh, Mount Vesuvius, um, which dominates the room and kind of sets the idea of the, the color scheme. And you can see there is um, um, uh, Roman uh, Renaissance uh, fragment set into the coffee table. That's, a, that's very much a sort of Federico trope, which is used in other friends' houses and so on. Um, what you can't see tucked behind that door are a pair of really beautiful Baroque columns that were um, a gift from um, Balenciaga to uh, Federico, I think a sort of testament to their great friendship. On the side table here, you can see some of the urns in the apartment. Um, at one point, I said to Credo, look, it's just everywhere you look, there's an urn. If it's, you know, it's set into park, uh, marquetry in an in a early 19th century cabinet. It's in a little bit of Capodimonte. It's in a a, Ro- it's a Roman vessel. It's, it's on a, a plate commissioned by uh, Federico's family in the um, early 19th century, which had a different um, um, vessel from Pompeii uh, painted onto every single um, plate or dish. And so um, I said, you know, just go, around, just go around and photograph every single urn you can possibly find. And we ended up doing this sort of wonderful double page collage okay. spread of the sort of some of the some of the, but not all of the urns that we that we found. And then in the next slide, so you you get it's a du- it's a triplex apartment actually, but you go in on one level and it's rather dark and mysterious. Um, and those wonderful terracotta colours that we've just seen. And then you go upstairs and it's this incredible spirit of lightness. There's a um, terrace on one side and um, you have these kind of um, pale, um, very pale golden yellow silk curtains. Interestingly enough, when, Fed- when Federico was a very, um, a teenager, I think, not even a teenager, he, um, there, there's a wonderful 
room in, in the family house in Posillipo, which is surrounded, um, it, it has French windows on three sides with these wonderful views, very tall, high ceilinged room, um, which we have a photograph of in the book. And Federico's first adventure in decorating was asking his mother if he could stage an intervention. And he took the curtains down and put up very pale yellow silk curtains in that room, ochre silk mm -hmm. curtains. And of course, it totally changed the dynamic of the room, which was flooded in this kind of golden light every, every afternoon. So um, uh, he sort of repeated the experiment um, 50 years later at home in Rome. And, you know, you can see there are actually some really extraordinary pieces in this room. Um, Federico has several remarkable pieces by Luigi Balladier, for instance, and very significant um, early Roman um, pieces, um, a great collection of micro mosaics. You can see those on the little table next to the mm -hmm. um, linen velvet sofa. Um, let's see what else we have. Um, this is um, a room in uh, yet another lovely, um, more domestically scaled palazzo in Rome, um, uh, belonging to um, a friend of a friend of Federico's, um, who is a sort of Russian Italian aristocrat. These two um, ladies, I think, were um, sisters and ladies in waiting to Catherine the Great, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and they kind of dictated the, the color scheme. And Federico, you know, works with really amazing craftspeople like um, the um, trompe l'oeil um, artists who worked on these wall treatments. He's just, he's been working with some um, wonderful bronze workers um, to create kind of little gilt, um, gilt bronze trees, for instance, from which to hang micro mosaic um, pendants um, in his collection. Um, uh, my, my first sort of working day with Federico was just, um, I was kind of, I had a sort of 24 hour breather between the Milan and Paris collections and I, um, took the train to Rome and um, went to meet Federico that morning. And he took me on a kind of marching tour of Rome, um, meeting clients who were all friends and going from one palazzo to another, to one sort of incredible Liberty style apartment building um, to, um, you know, Ginevra Elkan's kind of loft, um, pan-generational clients and friends. And I was, absolutely shattered, exhausted. He was still going, uh, you know, we had dinner and, you know, we got incredible stories all through dinner. Then after dinner, he wanted to show me more pictures and everything. You know, I think um, he's always had a great deal of energy. And I think this project really <laughs> kind of gave him a- I'm sure, yeah, new lease on life here. Yes, well, he kept saying, you know, Hamish, we have to get this book out. I have to be there for the book signing. I'm 89. Oh, so um, great. You know, I think, I really think he's going to outlive us all. Yes. <laughs> Probably. Um, this, this is the wonderful Peroni apartment um, in Rome. Um, this is the grandson of um, Charles and Marie-Laure de Noailles. So, you know, there are, as you can imagine, they're extraordinary man rays and um, a great surrealist pictures here that, table is another example of Federico's work. Um, but you can see, you know, he, he sort of, 
um, it's not all palazzo land, you know. Right, this is much more pared down and modern, really. It's more pared down and modern, and I think I, I loved particularly the, the curtains in the um, second sitting drawing room beyond. Which yeah, kind of, you see through the doorway they there. They sort of evoke a little bit of um, Federico's op art work in fashion work in the 60s, so right. it's fun to Beautiful. me. Um, and then, yes, this is um, a kind of, this was actually the view from my ground floor guest bedroom in the what had been a barn, um, an animal sty actually, um, looking down this wonderful um, wisteria pergola um, to a little um, um, verdigris bronze figure of Pan, I think at the end, and these kind of rather wild romantic herbaceous borders. I think through Russell Page and visiting a lot of English gardens, um, British gardens, Federico was very turned on to the Gertrude Jekyll idea of herbaceous borders and a certain wildness. So his houses, his gardens are really special because you have a kind of French formality that, that is almost belle epoque on, in its ambition with um, triage, um, pergolas and walkways and little pavilions. And then you have um, a real sense of Italian um, Renaissance formality with kind of cypress trees and more formal um, um, massing of greenery. And then this kind of English romance. And there are lovely things like um, Russell Page advised him to plant all these um, in, in a little area where you, that you walk through to get from the guest house to the main house for your meals or whatever. Um, he advised him to plant, plant like a sort of fra fragrant herb garden and to build the, the, the beds a foot high so that you would be at the level of the fragrant blossom um, oh, as you walk through and sort of brushed against them. So, you know, it's full of really wonderful things. There's sort of alleys of, um, uh, of crab apple underplanted with irises and so on. Um, and the, the fantastic thing, this is um, actually the Limonaya, like a little summer room that more or less connects the guest room with the, um, with the original farmhouse. And um, if you're sitting in that sofa, looking across the kind of uh, once on the ocean, you know, made in Morocco side tables, um, you're looking at the little walled garden that um, Russell Page had, had suggested Federico and Matteo create. Um, it's a, a wonderful... Yeah evocative room. I mean, there's also a great sense of comfort in Federico's interiors, you know, just as his clothes are kind of pragmatic in a way. Um, there's always an area to sit and read. He's a great reader, uh, voracious reader, so there are books everywhere. Um, and there's, there's always a place to put your drink down or your book down, you know, it's very... First it's, rule of decorating, yes, a lamp and a table to put your drink down. Right. It's very kind of American in that approach. Um, this is a corner of the sitting room in the guest house. Um, you can see there's this, this great kind of fern motif. Um, and um, hope you're not getting all this rumbling. It's not my stomach. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> very Construction, it's design, baby, in process. Next door. Hope it ends up as beautiful as these interiors. Right. Okay. Um, um, so the wonderful thing is that um, this is um, one of Federico's studies. This, this room is dedicated to Egypt. 
So um, there, are, there's, there are lots of um, um, Egyptian themed prints and objects um, um, throughout, throughout this room. It's, it's utterly enchanting, sort of created under the eaves of, of, of the, the farmhouse uh, as he converted it. There used to be a kind of, um, this is his bedroom. Um, bedspread was made um, to his design in India. Um, there are sort of exquisite little objects and, and pictures everywhere. You look and it's, this room is wonderful because when you walk into it, you really have a sense that the garden is brought inside. It's exactly the same green that you see. Um, it's, it's also, this, this room has windows on three sides. Um, and so you have light at all times of day Beautiful. and you're always, wherever you sit, you're looking in the garden and you know there are chaise longs and everything i think you know it's totally designed for people to come and have continue their chats or begin their chats and conversations um, um in, in this very convivial room um this is a wonderful i think i mentioned this earlier this is a sort of underplanting this this so is the crab apple trees this is the crab apple trees and the mm. irises this was taken in the 90s um, um Marina Shintz, who um, was so uh, taken with the gardens when she visited them um, in the late 80s, 90s, she produced a whole book. Um, yeah, that book was very influential. I yes. remember it well. Task yes. and Paradise, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's interesting now because the gardens very much sort of evolved. This is one of her marvelous pictures mm -hmm. of, um, this is the sort of rather more French um, um, triage, metal triage pergola, very abundantly planted and underplanted with roses and with these pale irises. Very beautiful sort of setting. What's so um, fantastic is that Federico has, um, is bequeathing the house and the gardens to FI, which is the Italian National Trust body. Oh, fantastic. And so it's going to be open for visitors and study so everyone is going to be able at some point to be able to um, uh, experience uh, this wonderful environment and and in anticipation of that he's moved a lot of the Neapolitan pieces from his Rome apartment into a newly created Neapolitan room he demolished the wall between his breakfast room and dining room as they were and created this whole new room which was just finished at the beginning of the pandemic um, so we actually, the book was about to go to press. Um, we actually, um, I, I raced down to Rome and um, Guido came, went directly to Chitona to document it so that we could have two or three spreads um, in, in the book um, documenting this, this new project. And um, in fact, um, you know, we, we went into lockdown a few days later, so it really was the sort of- So the timing was perfect. The timing was perfect. Um, I have a couple of questions um, from Pamela Babby of Bamo, who basically, first she wanted to say how much she loved your book and thought it was so brilliantly laid out. And I couldn't agree more. And that's why I'm telling everybody to go and get this book. It's amazing. She had a couple of questions. First of all, she wanted to know what year the Peroni Rome apartment done was done. Uh, Peroni um, has been done very recently. I think I think all his projects are evolutionary, mm -hmm. and in fact, the Peroni apartment was a duplex um, 
and they recently decided to create two different departments. So it's an ongoing thing because Federico is, and when I was there, there were, you know, literally fabric swatches pinned to sofas. And so it's, it's, it's recent and ongoing, but I think a lot of his um, projects are evolutionary in that way. Mm -hmm. And then um, others, you know, the clients are so delighted that they- They, they don't change much. They're the same, no. Yeah. And, and her, her last question here, of course, if anybody has more questions, please type them in. But her last question, which is a very design focused question, I think is very appropriate to Forquet's life and the way he decorated. She wants to know what is his favorite late afternoon aperitivo cocktail? Oh, gosh. <laughs> what does he like to drink? That's what this crowd always wants to know. Amy. I do know this. As, I, as I'm not drinking myself, um, I tried to... <laughs> Let me think. I think it could be a Negroni. Um, Very popular. But, um, um, I know that Negronis have been served, and of course, they're um, color-wise, they're the perfect complement to the Neapolitan room. Yes. Giardino frescoes. So I'm, I'm wanting to say Negroni because it's an aesthetic. We'll aesthetic. take that answer. Sure. We will take that answer. That's perfect. Um, <laughs> Okay, well, you know, Hamish, I can't thank you enough for this. This has been so entertaining and so much fun. And, you know, all the insights behind the, the stories in the book. The book is amazing. And you should be so proud of it. It was quite an accomplishment in all the different essays and the contributors you got. It's really, really fun, a fantastic book. And I, so I want to thank you so much uh, for that, Hamish. And I also want to remind everyone who's listening, you know, we're having two more of these expert access webinars coming up very different from Hamish's. Um, one is uh, the new editor-in-chief of El Decor, Asad Skirat, um, Sirkret, I'm misspelling his name, Asad. Um, and he's talking next week. And we also have Simone uh, Morris, who's an award-winning diversity and inclusion leader about how we can help to diversify and expand the talent in the design world. Um, you can register for both of those sessions on the DLN website. Um, and I know they're both gonna be really great. And um, just as this one with Hamish was, and Hamish, I can't thank you enough. It's been so, it's such a pleasant morning on this gray, rainy morning in New York to sit with you and talk about the wonderful world of 4K. And I just made me realize I have to freshen up my own Egypt room um, <laughs> right after this. So um, thank you so much, Hamish. And thank you thank all for you. listening and please sign up for the next DLN webinar, okay? Bye, Wade. Good Great weekend, all. Time with you. Thank Bye, you. Bye, Hamish. Bye. Great Bye. to see Bye. you. Bye.